0: Hello, I'm Mark Marnaka. I'm the lay uh, worship leader for today. My section I entitled Smooth Stones and the Flow of Life and Mentors, Human and Otherwise. I start today by excerpting from the Unitarian Universalist History and Heritage Society. James Luther Adams, Excuse me, Reverend James Luther Adams and Professor Adams spent a long and fruitful life blazing spiritual paths and leading students and colleagues in his role as, quote, the most influential theologian among Amer- American Unitarian Universalists of the 20th century. He held a firm conviction that the liberal church should make itself a faithful voice for voiceless oppressed, and his year of study in Germany gave him first-hand experience of the Nazi government's ruthless crushing of dissent and of his personal interrogation by the Gestapo. He later taught at Meadville Lombard and also Harvard Divinity School. He was a strong advocate of voluntary associations, such as the Free Church and liberal faith. He was a brilliant teacher, so much so that his classes always drew students From many faith traditions. Reverend Adams connects me with people who were my diverse mentors in my life in community, profession, family, and faith. Tip of the hat to my mentor spouse, Suzanne, (laughs) and to my mother, and to our daughter, who uh, is a mother for her, her sons. My mentors had helped me become a lay healer in a volunteer crisis center, who taught me about how to be honest and virtuous as one becomes one's own person, who taught about mythology and the stages of life, who helped students enter the existential and phenomenological worlds with enthusiasm and as if to initiate us and other mentors, including so many people with whom I helped in the coming-of-age programs here in the past, and in choir, and in the vital parts of the life of the fellowship. And now, when I consider smooth stones, five or 25, I would probably think of wading in shallow, sandy Wisconsin streams, skipping stones as if they could fly and land precisely where they, or I, wished they would enjoying the currents that moved sand and polished rocks as if the stream would flow forever. Professor Adams' five stones provide us key resources and guideposts for spiritual community, optimism, goodness, effort, and revelation. As I examined Reverend Adams' history as an honored teacher of diverse students, I thought much about our much-honored and sincere and committed RE assistant, Eve Rosira, who just recently passed away. She certainly acted as a mentor and an affirming presence and offered her teaching as an incarnation of her virtues and hope. She and her beloved service dog, Phoebe, certainly added to the quotient of optimism, virtuosity, and loving in our community. The poet Mary Oliver wrote an entire book about dogs entitled Dog Songs. I don't think the dogs were singing her the songs, but I think she was basically providing the lyrics for their lives as pets. I would like to share a couple of those poems for Eve and Phoebe and others who have had uh, much-loved pets and still do or will yet. First poem is Every Dog's Story. I have a bed, my very own, it's just my size. And sometimes I like to sleep alone with dreams inside my eyes. But sometimes dreams are dark and wild and creepy and I wake and am afraid, though I don't know why, but I'm no longer sleepy and too slowly the hours go by. So I climb on the bed where the light of the moon is shining on your face and I know it will be morning soon. Everybody needs a safe place. This is very fitting on Mother's Day, but also in appreciation for the nurturance that we give and receive (laughs) from all in our families. Next poem. How it is with us and how it is with them. We become religious, then we turn from it. Then we are in need and maybe we turn back. We turn to making money, then we turn to the moral life, then we think about money again. We meet wonderful people but lose them in our busyness. We're, as the saying goes, all over the place. Steadfastness, it seems, is more about dogs than about us. One of the reasons, that's one of the reasons we love them so much. While dogs and poetry may seem unusual soulmates, it all seems to connect with how our communities can honor and implement five smooth stones with our adult members, as well as our creatures, plants, earth, elders, families, and youth. More poetry may well serve our great appetite for powerful incarnations of truth, warmth, humor, and vulnerability. Please welcome the creatures in your lives and families, and please share what you are learning from any deep attention you pay to the flowers, gardens, sunshine, and the good works of human hands and hopes. May it always be so. Best wishes.
1: When I lived in Maryland, in a small city outside of Washington, D.C., I voted in each election, like I do now, at a small church. I think it was a Baptist church. I remember that the voting took place in their community or fellowship hall. I remember that it had floor-to-ceiling, dark wood paneling. I don't remember much else about that location, except that on the way out the door, as one might be leaving the church, there was a small engraved wooden sign above the exit doors intended, I know, for the parishioners of the congregation, not for me, a random voter visiting their space. The sign said, you are now entering the mission field. I was at that time already a UU minister. We wouldn't use words like mission field. Mission work or missionaries are not a part of Unitarian Universalist tradition. But I used to stop and look at that sign. I love the simplicity of it. You're not just leaving the church. not thank you for coming, or we're glad you were here. Nope. You are now, as you leave this place and enter the world, you are now crossing a threshold into a new phase of your religious and spiritual practice. This year, we have added a phrase to our Sunday morning services at the very end. Usually, Marie is the one who asks you to think of something from the morning service and then to carry it with you into your week in the hopes that whatever you are taking from this service will give you inspiration and empowerment. Until we meet again. For the last several weeks here, we have been learning about each of the five smooth stones of religious liberalism, as articulated by the 20th century Unitarian Universalist theologian, the Reverend James Luther Adams, or JLA, as he was lovingly known. Today we will learn about the last of the five. As a final reminder, the five smooth stones are JLA's description of what it means to be a religious liberal, what values we hold that differentiate religious liberalism from other forms of religious thought, and what responsibilities we carry to be able to claim the title of religious liberal named after the five smooth stones that David carried in the Hebrew Bible story of David and Goliath. These are the things that we can hold close to us in our pocket. They're seemingly small or maybe even insignificant, but they are powerful, just like the stones that felled the warrior giant Goliath. We too are facing significant forces of strength power and potential oppression, just like David. Are we brave enough to use these stones, if needed? So as a final reminder, there will be a test next week—just kidding, that's a joke. The first of the five smooth stones of religious liberalism is that revelation is not sealed. New truths are always being revealed and learned, and we should be open to those truths, willing to change our minds to learn and grow with the changes. This is a unique feature of our version of religious life. Unlike those who cling to tradition or view their scriptures as sealed for all time, we say the opposite. The second stone is that all relationships ought to rest on free, mutual consent, and not coercion. We believe this to be true about all relationships, but especially those in our religious communities, our churches, and our fellowships. We believe that in order to be named a relationship, it has to rest on the power of love, not fear, and the ability for each person to consent, to agree, to wholeheartedly come back, over and over again, to the relationship. We will disagree. We will get mad at each other. We will have struggles. But mutual consent means that we can choose to come back together, again and again. The third stone is that we affirm the moral obligation to direct our efforts toward a just and loving community. It's not enough to say, sing, pray, or post online the right beliefs. Our actions must be employed to make those beliefs real in the world. Today's stone, the fourth, goes hand-in-hand with that third one. It states that we, quote, deny the immaculate conception of virtue and affirm the necessity of social incarnation. In other words, that means that we don't believe that virtue, or good things, just happen. People make them happen through our free will. We also believe that we must make those things real, not just in our own lives, but in society. And the final stone, the fifth, which Ali covered for us on Easter, sums up the rest of the previous four. JLA states that we believe that the resources, both divine and human, that are available to us, justify an attitude of ultimate optimism. Or another way to say that is we believe that if all of the other smooth stones are true, and if we are able to utilize them, then we have everything we need, in the long run, to have hope. So back to today's stone, that one about denying the Immaculate conception of virtue. That language is so perfect for James Luther Adams. He loved to turn religious phrases on their head, and he loved saying things that could be said concisely with a lot of words. The Immaculate Conception is a Roman Catholic doctrine or teaching that states that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was kept free of original sin from the moment of her birth. This has been, of course, understood to mean that she was perfect, pure, and of course she was a virgin when, she, when her pregnancy with Jesus came to be. Jesus was then conceived in a perfectly pure womb. None of the messiness of life or sin or sex getting involved at all. But J.L.A. says that is not how virtue works. In the real world, we have to get messy in order to bring to life the realities of our faith and our values in the world. None of us is perfectly pure, and thank goodness, because the world sure isn't either. He says that what is needed is social incarnation. Incarnation is a word that means come to life or given a body. In Christian theology, Jesus is an incarnation of God. James Luther Adams is telling us that we, through our relationships in society, are the potential body that gives form and function to goodness. He says in the reading we heard earlier, quote, There is no such thing as goodness as such. Except in a limited sense, there is no such thing as a good person as such. There's the good spouse, the good parent, the good worker, the good employer, the good clergy person, the good lay person, the good citizen. The decisive forms of goodness in society are institutional forms. No one can properly put faith in a merely individual virtue, even though that is a prerequisite for social virtue. End quote. His argument is against an individualistic sense of goodness, and for a collective, lived-in-the-world sense of goodness. He says that our faith must be one that tries to shape history. Any other faith, he says, is only one that enables history to crush humanity. And, quote, its ministry prepares people to adjust to that crushing by focusing on and solving that personal experience of hurt. Yikes. He was not mincing words. And remember, though, that J.L.A. witnessed firsthand the rise of Nazism while he lived in Germany. He witnessed the fact that his beloved faith tradition, religious liberalism, Unitarianism, was impotent against that rise that this tradition and the confessing church that he joined later fought against the influence that Nazis tried to impose on the church, but they too struggled to make any meaningful impact against the social evils that they witnessed. JLA wanted us to know a church that preaches only comfort when the world is crushing is a church complicit in that pain. So I want to go back, for a moment, to the rejection of the immaculate conception of virtue. Back to the messiness. The Reverend Teresa Soto says in their poem, Bring your broken hallelujah here. I know that people have told you that before you can give, you have to get yourself together. They overstated the value of perfection by a lot. Here together, we reach within. As a community, we begin again. And from the pieces, we will build something new. We wait for you. Reverend Soto is a queer and genderqueer disabled UU minister. Their voice is one of the powerful voices of faith at this time in our history. They are reminding you today, just like JLA from almost a century ago, that you are needed. You are needed in all of your brokenness and messiness and imperfection to create the new story that comes next. Today on this day that has been set aside to honor the mothers among us, we acknowledge the messiness of motherhood, of parenting of being parented, of longing, and grief, and fear, and worry, and love, and care. If there is a messier holiday on the calendar, I'm not sure I know about it. And then this week, the news broke that our nation's Supreme Court is potentially sending our nation back 50 years to a time when the choice to become a mother or a parent was out of the hands of so many. When the choice to carry or not to carry a pregnancy to term was held by the government, and access to safe options to terminate that pregnancy were not available, leaving people with only dangerous options. This reality that our nation might be returning to that time seems irrational and unthinkable, and yet it is likely. This is not an individualistic issue. The right to healthcare is not something that we earn solely on our own. Nor is the impact of forced childbearing something that only an isolated few will bear. This impacts all of us, of every gender, every age, every race, every sexuality, every socioeconomic status. It will to be sure impact those whose bodies can bear children the most. It will impact the young the poor, and communities of color the most. But each of us will have a role to play in the months and years to come as we join with our UU siblings around the nation in proclaiming and acting on our values when it comes to reproductive justice. UUs have long supported access to abortion, including through the Clergy Consultation Service, which was an underground network that helped people seeking an abortion to get counseling and access to safe abortion care. Members of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas were party to an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade. And the UUA was the first religious denomination to publicly support the right to reproductive choice in 1963. In 2016, the UUA passed a resolution in support of reproductive justice. They name in that resolution the origin of that term, reproductive justice, as originating with women of color in the 1990s, encompassing not only the need to support people's right to control their own bodies, but also comprehensive sexual education, support for parental leave, affordable childcare, access to healthcare, freedom from violence and coercion, and all the ways that we might support life and healthy reproduction. It's part of our tradition, it's part of our values, part of our commitment to trying to shape history, rather than only preaching comfort in the face of oppressive history. The news from the Supreme Court means that we might be facing yet another opportunity to make real our faith through our actions in the world, to affirm the necessity of social incarnation. JLA reminds us that goodness is only made real in our relationships. Providing care, compassion, access, and fighting like hell against forces that widen existing disparities in our communities—that is how social incarnation works. And it's frustrating, and it's exhausting. And I know that many of you are wondering how on earth we are having to fight this fight again. But it is in communities like this one that we can and we will find ways to make real our values. We make real our values when we offer each other meals and listening presences when we're struggling. We make real our values when we write letters to our legislators advocating for ways to relieve childhood hunger through bread for the world. We make real our values when we support local undocumented immigrants or asylum seekers. We make real our values when we provide a safe space for LGBTQ youth. We make real our values when we advocated for reproductive justice in the past, And we can do it again. But just this week, I received an email from the field director of the UUA's Side with Love campaign. She reminded reminded us—reminded me—that, quote, we are a movement, not a machine. Caring for ourselves, our spirits, and our communities is essential to sustaining our movements for justice. Unitarian Universalism, this fellowship, exists to support each other. To provide reciprocal care, connection, and hope to each other. To remind each other of our deepest values, especially when the world seems like it's spinning out of control. To strengthen ourselves as we prepare to go back out into the world, holding our five smooth stones in our pocket ready to be a faith that shapes history, as we leave this place and enter the mission field. Our next hymn is a traditional Christian hymn, but I invite you, if you can, to hear the words with new ears, the way we hear James Luther Adams' call for the denial of the Immaculate Conception of Virtue. We can hear the grace that is offered through social incarnation. We can hear the grace offered through God, the one that James Luther Adams would call the commanding, transforming, sustaining reality. God made real through human hands. And we can hear the amazing, saving grace offered to each of us and to our hurting world. May it be so. Amen.